Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is a little bit different. A few weeks ago, I was invited to take part in the Creative Relay a podcast series where Australia's most inspiring creatives talk to the creatives who most inspire them. I was invited by Michaela Webb of Melbourne Studio Around, and then it was my turn to pick up the baton and choose a creative person who inspires me. I didn't have to think long before choosing someone I've long admired for his passion for creativity and ideas, the legendary ad man, Sir John Hegarty. It was John's first ever podcast and such a great conversation that I wanted to share it with you. So here's a little bit about John. He's one of the most successful, awarded and respected men in advertising, an international luminary of the creative scene. He's a household name in London, and an uncompromising creative person, an accomplished author, rule breaker and game changer, who has spent six decades generating ideas that have changed the world. John co-founded TBWA in 1973, before starting BBH in 1982 with his friends and colleagues, John Bartle and Nigel Bogle. He was creative director of BBH for 30 years, where he created some of the defining campaigns of the decade, such as the Lynx effect for Unilever, which turned Lynx into a global bestseller, as well as the infamous Laundrette campaign for Levi's, which sold over two million boxer shorts in one year. In 2007, John was knighted for his service to the advertising and creative industries. He's a champion of storytelling a master of challenging the status quo and a true ideas man. On the list of credit people that inspires me, he's at the top. I want to say a big thank you to Dan, Paul, and Nick at Smith & Western for sharing the recording with me so I can share it with you. Well, I mean, I didn't say his name at the time. No. Because I didn't know if I still had his number or I could get <laughs> hold of him. Or even would he would say yes, but thankfully. John Hegarty uh, is the world's most awarded and respected ad men of all time. And in London, you know, he's a household name. But I've very much respected the fact that John's still working today. He's been in advertising for, I think, six decades. Is that right, John? It's a terrifying number of decades. It shames me almost. I kind of, uh, when, I, when I hear that. But yes, yeah, something but like that. But isn't it, it's incredible to the, to, that you're still doing it today. And, and uh, I think we'll talk about how you started, John, etc., and how you got to where you are. Um, but what I love about you is, is your passion for creativity and un- uncompromising creativity and big on ideas. And I think that's something that, I don't know, I kind of feel like it's not happening as much as it should be. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly in Australia, I, I feel like there's a bit of a deficit there with the scale of ideas that um, John has been involved in the ad campaign, such as the, uh, the wonderful, the Nick Kamen ad for, for Levi's, you know, which was a game changer. Uh, I think it changed. And people rushed out and bought white boxer shorts. I'm still wearing them today. You know, like, I, I hope a different, yeah, a different pair. A different pair. Yeah, we were all hoping that. Yeah. We all had that thought, yeah. didn't we? Oh my god! So I'm absolutely thrilled, as much as you are, to have him on on this podcast. And I don't want to take up any more time because we want to hear from John. Well, welcome, John. It's great to have you here. Great to be. You here. are an international uh, legend of the uh, oh. creative scene, and. I mean, I wouldn't mind asking a question just to start off with. So Vince mentioned the Levi's laundromat ad, which I think I was at university when that ad came out studying to get into advertising. And it was such a game changer. And I think what you did with that campaign really was, I think you created a, a whole genre for advertising, a new genre. And like Vince said, I think you also got people to change their underpants. Everyone went from (laughs) briefs to boxes kind of overnight. And it was really quite amazing. And so I'm curious, John, do you think, have you got any other examples of work that you've, you've done over the years where there have been these unexpected side effects from the work. Well, you, I always think, uh, well, thank you very much for those kind words, by the way. I, I, I sort of think of myself as a jobbing art director, really, just trying to have better ideas each day. But um, I, I think when, you, when you're having ideas, when you're doing things like Levi's, I, I have this phrase which says, principles remain, practices change. And the the principles of creativity remain absolute. Uh, They don't change. They haven't changed for the last thousand years. You could argue even 2,000 years. But, of course, 
where it changes is in how you can communicate with your audience. But I think if you're doing daring, hopefully daring work, work that pushes the edges of uh, the envelope and all those kind of phrases, you end up doing things that capture people's imagination and therefore change the way work is done. I mean, one of the other things that we did in the early days of BBH is uh, for Audi, and uh, we introduced, uh, reintroduced actually, because it was a, a, a line that they had used before, but I saw it on a wall in a factory on a faded old poster, and I sort of brought it back, was Vorsprung durch Technik. And I, I've noticed how many car companies now all kind of sign themselves off with a either Italian, if they're an Italian car maker, or obviously if they're German, Volkswagen is now doing it. So you get emulated when people realize that you've struck something um, particularly memorable uh, that captures the audience's imagination. But you don't go out, if you set out to try and do that, you won't do it. Mm, right. What you have to do is do something that's really true to the idea you've had, true to the uh, uh, the piece of communication you're trying to work on. And then, you know, it, it, it will connect. I mean, one of the funny stories about the Levi's work is that when we made those two commercials, we made two actually. One was called Bath and the other was called Laundrette. And um, obviously, scripts. Now, I always... I always surmise, had the client turned around and said, look, guys, I'm really, really sorry. We've actually can only have budget for one. So which one would you make? And it's always played in my mind, that thought. So which one would you have made? Mm. Now, there's no question, and I don't think I'm telling stories out of school here, that most people preferred Bath. Uh, and the idea was it was a guy getting dressed. You think he's getting dressed to go out. And he gets his hair ready. He gets that. He puts and he puts his jeans on. And then he gets into a bath of uh, of water to shrink the jeans. Now everybody thought that was a better spot. And Laundrette was kind of considered less so at script stage. I, I deep down, I I don't think I quite agreed with that. But that's another story. I will never know. I will never know. But yeah. it's funny. It's wonderful how fate plays a part in your success. Now, as I say, had the client said, sorry, we can only make one, which one would you have made? And, of course, um, we, we know which one we should have made, but had we not made that uh, and made Bath, where would I be today? Would I be sitting at this microphone talking to you? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you probably would be anyway. Don't tell me there was a third script that could have even been better. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, there was a third script, but I don't think it was better, uh, and I just vaguely <laughs> remember it. <laughs> but it is I, I, it's one of the reasons why I love film. Um, I love storytelling. Everything I do, uh, I, I love story. I love The two things I really, really adore about communication, I love um, film, uh, wherever you show that, be it online, be it in cinema, be it on television. And the other thing I love is posters. Posters because... I think they're an utterly brilliant medium. It, it forces you to reduce your thinking down to maximum five words. Uh, but great communication is about reduction. What are you taking mm. out? And, and it's not dissimilar to that great line of Coco Chanel's about, you know, uh, how can you make something better? Take something off. Mm. And um, mm. in a sense with communication, take something out. How can you reduce it? How can you get it down to being a really smart, sharp piece of work? And, and that's why I love those two mediums. But also film, because in a way, you never know. The great lines of William Goldman, the great screenwriter, is about Hollywood. Nobody knows. Mm, mm, amazing. So do you think... Um, so, I mean, I, I guess we noticed over here maybe about 10 or so years ago, just with the you know massive expanse of the digital world, that the the views seeing things in terms of a script or a, or a poster seemed very old fashioned and out of date did you ever get a sense that you were i don't know just trying to push those and people were resisting that sort of a thinking as something that belonged to another era oh definitely i mean there, there there's no case that i mean I think we're in a very, very peculiar world in terms of the communications industry. Um, I don't think we're producing very good work. I think um, there is increased resistance to what we produce. And I think, and, and there's, uh, uh, this isn't my opinion, there's 
uh, uh, research to show that the people we are talking to have a have less regard for the industry that we're in. Mm. Now, I think that's alarming. Uh, I think that's an alarming situation to be in. Uh, I've never heard of any industry suggesting that you can increase market penetration by by making a worse product. Mm. Uh, I, I've not read a business book that said, you know, the way to success is to make something worse. I've read lots of business books that say try and make it better. And we're, that's the situation we're in right now. We're, we're producing work that people don't like. Uh, they think it's invasive. Um, I think we're encouraging brands to be what I call stalker brands that stalk the consumer, that stalk the audience. I've never liked the word consumer. I think it's a horrible word, but stalk our audience. Um, and I think there's incredible resentment to it. And I, I absolutely agree with it. I mean, I came into the industry at a time when, you know, we were influenced by the great Bill Birnbach, who, who really invented modern advertising. And he said, your job is to engage and entertain. Uh, and we were brought up to kind of engage with the audience, entertain the audience, create something that made it worthwhile watching. Whereas today, uh, the answer is not to do that, is to stalk them, mm. uh, is to find a way of invading their privacy. And I, I'm not sure that stalking creates long-term relationships. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a bit old-fashioned like that, maybe. You know? But, you know, lots of brands are doing it and, and they think it's perfectly okay. But I think most companies are now run by very stupid people, so it doesn't surprise me. Do you see a way out of it? Well, uh, you know, I'm a great believer in, in gravity, mm. you know, and gravity will out and the truth will out. And ultimately, you know, I think there needs to be another creative revolution in our industry and uh, another revolution in our industry, I should say. And that revolution will come from creative people because they're the ones that will change it. Um, technologists won't change it. They'll give you the tools to change it. Um, uh, management people won't change it because they're about managing. You know, it describes, their, it, it describes who they are in their title. It will be creative people that change it. And I think if you look back at all the, the big changes in our industry, they were made by creative people in the past. You know, I talked about... Bill Burback, I talked about, you know, I can talk about David Ogilvie, you know, you can talk about Dan Wyden at uh, Wyden and Kennedy. You know, it's creative people who make the changes. And I think it's time we had creative people coming back and fighting for what they believe in. Now, I think, I think it will happen. There's no question. Yeah. You have spoken a bit on our industry being the one kind of industry that describes itself as a, as a creative industry, yet the leader's aren't creative people. Well, exactly, that's the problem. Do you want to expand on that? I think we're in a peculiar... And this is why I think we're in the, in the place we're in, is that the, the leading figures, and I quote that, I put that in quotes, the leading figures in the industry, are management. Um, they're people at the head of these holding companies. They're, you know, I don't need to go into all the names. You know who they are. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones driving the agenda. And credit people have, for some bizarre reason, stood back and allowed them to take the agenda, take the stand. And I think, obviously, you know, I think if your obsession is creating more shareholder value for your for your, for your uh, investors, then of course, what you're going to do is look at how can I get more money out of this industry, not how can I make this industry better. And until we change that, until we stop that. Uh, our industry will keep going downhill. I mean, if you look at the music industry, the wealthiest people in the music industry are the people like, you know, Mick Jagger or I don't know, whoever they are. Uh, uh, you look at architecture, probably the richest person or one of the richest people in it is Frank Gehry. You know, it's not, it's not some management guy who's managing a batch of architects. We never heard of them. Mm. And if we pretend that we're a creative industry, then creative people have got to be at the top of it. I mean, I had a very fortunate, lovely lunch with John Lasseter of Pixar, and he made the point very, very clearly. He said, you cannot have a creative industry unless creative people are at the top of it. It's very simple, mm. very, very mm. simple. Is it more like that in London, in terms of how, it's, how agencies are structured in London? Or is there any you know, strong agencies that are creatively led? There are some out there, uh, not enough, um, because obviously mm. creativity needs a kind of a, a magnitude of people. It needs a number of people doing things. If you look at any great art movement, it wasn't just done by one or two people. It had a whole group of people who came together and fought for something. And I think 
That's what we've got to get back to. The focus of attention has got to be back on what are you producing as opposed to what platforms are you using. And, you know, I, I, I think it's... Um, we're being driven by these large technology companies who are obviously promoting what they do, promoting what they sell, quite rightly so too. Um, if I was them, I'd be doing the same. But it's not the same as people standing back and judging, how do I communicate with my audience? What's the idea? How do I move them? How do I create empathy with them? How do I get them to admire me? How do I become a part of culture? These are the things that drive brands. And we're just not having enough mm. of those mm. conversations. Why is it, do you think, that the creatives haven't taken that leadership? Are they being held back or is there some... Uh, are we just deficient in some way? <laughs> well, no, I don't think we're, we're deficient. But I, my, I, I, I gave a talk on this some, about four years ago and it was called um, Can You Name Gutenberg's Second Book? And the, the, the premise of the talk was that if when you get these amazing pieces of technology that arrive... Essentially, creative people are not sure what to do with them. They, what do you do with this? I don't know. It's, it's kind of new. It's not founded. I mean, if you're going to write a, a movie, you have a history of movies to look at and go, well, I'm not going to make a movie like that. I'm going to make one like this. Or if you're going to write a book, you know, you know, you look at all the books and you go, I'm going to do something different. And I think what happened, so, you know, Gutenberg comes along, creates the printing press, movable type, revolutionizes the communications industry, but he printed the Bible. That's what he printed. And he didn't do another, another book. He was a technologist. He had no idea. Now, there are other reasons why he didn't do it, but, but for the sake of the story. <laughs> and so what happens is you, you get this situation where creative people don't know how to respond to it. And, and this happens again and again. You know, I've said this before, the Lumiere brothers invent the moving camera, but they didn't realize they'd invented Hollywood. In fact, they gave up on it. They didn't know what to do with it. They invented it, didn't want to do with it. You know, Les Paul uh, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he invented the electric guitar or he perfected the electric guitar. He's not in there because he wrote Rock Around the Clock or Blue Suede Shoes. And it, it, in these situations, what happens is the technology comes along. Everybody goes, oh, this is absolutely amazing. Look, moving pictures. Wasn't that incredible? And then suddenly... You know, they get fed up with looking at people walking up and down a street and somebody comes along and says, do you know what, you could tell stories on this and they'd be fantastic. And then eventually they create Hollywood. And that takes 10 or 15 years. Mm. Same with, with Les Paul. You know, it was 1940 or something when he perfected the electric guitar. Well, rock and roll didn't really happen until about 1954, 55 with Elvis Presley. But it took creative people to understand, hold on, wait a minute, what you could do with this is this. And I think we're in that place right now. Right. But... You know, creativity is it's not you can't create in a vacuum. Every piece of creative work is relative to another creative piece of work. It's, rel it's a relativity. So, you know, Picasso creates cubism because he wanted you to look at a painting in a different way. He didn't just create cubism out of nothing. It was a, re it was a reaction to something else. Mm. Well, if there's nothing you can react against, it's very, very difficult to create. And I think that's sort of where we are now, and it's why technologists have such a sway but eventually we'll get used to that and we'll go fine i saw this lovely documentary by uh, gregory porter great black singer and he did a series of documentaries on this illustrates my point he did a series of documentaries on singing types of singing and he'd one on crooning and so why suddenly did crooners appear what was it well very simple it was the invention of the microphone so all of a sudden I could stand up in front of a thousand people and sing as though I was singing to one person in the audience. I didn't have to bellow. I didn't have to project. Mm. Now, the point about that is nobody talks about the microphone anymore, but they do talk about Frank Sinatra or, you know, whoever it might be. They talk about what people did with it. Yeah. But it took, you know, that's a, a, what I thought a wonderful example of technology and creativity working together uh, to create something. But in the end... It's the song you remember, not the microphone. One thing you touched on, uh, I read an interview, uh, you talked about no great idea has ever come out of brainstorming meetings. Do you have a pet hate for those? I do. Uh, I, I have to answer that question in a sort of roundabout way. Okay. There are two types of creativity. There's pure creativity and there's applied creativity. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean? And when people talk about creativity, they, they don't often understand this. Pure creativity is, and I always say this, is 
painting the Mona Lisa, coming up with The Simpsons, um, designing, I don't know, uh, the Guggenheim in Bilbao. An example of pure creativity. That came out of somebody's mind. It was driven by their, their, their imagination. Mm-hmm. Applied creativity is writing the 32nd episode of The Simpsons. I understand the characters. I understand what they're doing. My job now is to keep it going, keep it funny, keep it moving, keep it relevant, innovate within it, or designing the interiors of the, uh, Bil- the, the Guggenheim in Bilbao. Two different types of creativity. Mm. Now, so this is my point, that if you want a breakthrough idea, it comes out of the, someone's imagination. It comes out of their thinking. And I think this celebrates who we are as individuals. It celebrates us as individuals, as people who have uh, uh, ideas, ideas that can change the world. You know, when people say to me you need uh, brainstorm sessions, it's a bit like Soviet creativity. You know, we'll all be in a room, we'll all be instructed what to do, what to think. And there's no example. I ask the question. Every time I get this, I say to me, fine, can you tell me one idea that's great idea that's come out of a brainstorm meeting? A hand never goes up. <laughs> now, within 10 seconds, we can all think of probably get to 100 in no time at all. What's that telling us? That is telling us that well, as long as you understand what you're trying to do, if you're trying to create something very, very different, pure creativity as opposed to applied creativity... That's fine. Applied creativity, you need uh, 10 people in the room. You know, applied creativity is if I was designing the interior of the, um, the, the museum in, in Bilbao. Somebody came in that meeting who was a specialist in materials, said, well, we've got this great new material that can bend in 15 different ways, and it can do that, and it can do that. And you go, that's interesting. That could be very good. So you need that sense of kind of community to have an idea of that. Or if you're writing, you know, the 32nd episode of The Simpsons, you know, you're, you're banging, you're, you're knocking ideas around. So that's, you know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit, uh, I have a very definite point of view, as you can gather about that. Oh, it's, <laughs> I think it's really interesting because people, obviously people are moved, moving more towards this collaborative, creative problem solving, which I find, you know, obviously it, it can, can dilute the idea. And people are often talking now about the end of the guru, you know, the creative guru, etc. Um, and you do see that happening more and more where that's kind of almost frowned upon, you know, a person thinking of ideas, coming up with ideas, unless you're an architect, like you say. Um, but in our industry, it seems to be a move to kind of a team will solve this problem. Yeah. And maybe it's just safety in numbers, I don't know. But I think the creative is probably not as good as a result. Well, I couldn't agree more. And it's a typical example of people who don't, who don't earn their living by coming up with ideas telling you how to have an idea. I mean, the number of times I've been in meetings where people who don't have ideas and don't live by them, everybody has ideas. You know, you're going to have pizza or pasta tonight. That's an idea. You know, it's not going to change the world. So we all have ideas and we're all creative, except some of us earn our living by it. And, you know, I'm, I, the number of times I'm in a room where somebody tells me <laughs> how to have an idea and I spent a lifetime doing it. You know, and I, I and I think that's interesting. Are people not really done... that stupid that they'd be telling you oh. how to have an idea? Well, I think that they don't tell me directly. <laughs> they say indirect. This is how we should work, and you go fine if you want to work like that. Carry on. I mean, I think it's a terrible indictment that here we are in this place. You know, um, where we've advanced so far, we've we've done so much that we've we've celebrated i mean if you if you stand back and look at history how we have championed the rights of the individual we've championed those rights and now we have a whole load of people who're saying no no you don't have any right to have a, an idea anymore i'm going to stop you doing it you've got to collaborate and that's going back to it's it's soviet thinking yeah. and i'm sorry uh, i ain't going back there you can go back there and anyway the ideas you're coming up with is shit so <laughs> it, it, you know and we are the only industry that's the other thing that always amazes me we're the only industry create if we're pretending to be creative that actually believes this mm. i don't see you know ed sheeran going well you know i don't know i can't write music anymore i better sit down with a group of people and do it <laughs> um I, you know i don't i don't see frank geary going oh 
well, I can't come up with an idea anymore. I better, you know, let's have a committee meeting on this and see where we get to. And no other industry is doing this. Mm. But we are, you know, uh, Alfonso Cuaron was at uh, the Cannes uh, Ad Festival talking about his film Roma. Did he sit down with a group of people and say, what should we do a movie on? No, it came out of him. Mm. You know, the other thing I would say is you've got to define creativity. How do you define creativity? Now, there is no absolute definition, all right? There's no absolute definition. There are a number of definitions, but I personally, my one comes from the experience I've had. And it, and, it, and it says to me, first of all, we're all creative. That's the first thing to say. Everybody is creative. That's what separates us out from the animal kingdom. But somebody once said to me a very, very long time ago, they said, you know, John, music is the greatest of all art forms. And I went, having thought a lot about it, I said, no, no, I think it's the second greatest of all art forms. I think life is the greatest of all art forms. Living is a creative process. And I think, therefore, I define creativity as an expression of self. And, you know, when you hear, you know, and I, 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 was, I hadn't heard Quaran talking about Roma. It was an expression of his life. When you, talk, you hear a novelist talking about their book, they talk about what I wanted to say was this, what I wanted to do was that. You know, you, t you talk about an architect expressing an idea and it's an expression of self. So if you believe that, it's not expression of a group, it's an expression of self. And I think to turn around and say, which I know you're quite right, Vince, and, and I've had it said to me in, on numerous, numerous occasions, that, you know, that's the old way of working, this is the new way. It's collaboration. It's made up by idiots. You know, they're just idiots. <laughs> I mean, and, and they are stupid because they've, they've not, you know what I mean? <laughs> you get people who say stupid things all the time. You know, we've got an election here in the UK for the new Prime Minister, a man called Boris mm. Johnson, who just gets up and lies. Yeah. And everybody goes, yeah, OK, yeah, all right. Yeah. And somehow we're, we've entered a world where we aren't challenging people enough challenge them that's not true it isn't true you're not you know what name any great piece of art great movie great book was you know a book written by a group of people they're going to sit around and hey we're going to committee is going to write this book yeah you want to read it so john everything you're saying is so true and like uh vincent and i are sitting here we're just nodding our heads and i know probably all the creative people who are listening to this are going of course of course i agree i agree but you're, you're Sir John Hegarty. What, what, what can you say to, you know, a bunch of creative guys who are sitting around in an agency who are, who are a little meeting invite pops up for a brainstorming session? How can they get out of this nonsense? Well, they can resign. Yeah, OK. No, I'm, I don't mean that. I'm not saying that glibly. Yeah. I'm not saying that honestly glibly. If you look at the creative revolution that happened in advertising, to get some historical perspective on it. It was made by people who'd set out to run their agency the way they wanted to run it. And they worked on very, very small accounts. They didn't try and take over the world. They didn't try and say to Unilever or P&G or Nike or whoever it was, this is what we want to do. They worked on very, very small accounts. And the revolution always happens at the edges mm. and then it moves into the centre. And I never came into this industry, you know, thinking I was going to earn a whole load of money. I just came into the industry because I loved ideas, loved doing what I was doing. And I was stunned when I came into it at how much you could earn. But I did, that's what, that didn't motivate me. Yeah. Mm. What motivated me was having ideas. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, I've already quoted Birnbach. You know, he worked on a, on very small accounts. I mean, Volkswagen was a funny little German car account, mm. you know, in 1959. I mean, it was irrelevant as far as General Motors was concerned. He worked on Avis, which was ridiculously small little rental company. He worked on uh, Levi's, Jewish bread. Small little companies where you could have an effect, where you could say something that was very distinctive, where they would listen to what you were saying, where they had to punch above their weight. The revolution is not going to be made by Unilever or P&G or any big corporation. The revolution starts at the edges, and that's where you've got to get to, get back to the edges.
Many years ago, I read your book on creativity about there not being any rules. And there were some really wonderful mm. little adages in there as well, I thought. And you had kind of three things that you, when you, when you sort of discussed career longevity. Mm. And you said not being cynical. Yep, definitely. Not chasing the money. Yep. And keeping yourself open. Yeah. Take the headphones off, take, take, which take, I don't want to encourage anyone yeah, to do no, at the moment, today, but anyway. Yeah, that's right. Well, But can you talk about those points? Because I, I feel like I've failed on all three, and it probably explains a lot about my career as opposed to yours, John. No, not but if all. you could just explain a bit about those points, I think they're fascinating. Well, yeah, I, well, well the, it, it came from a point, the point of view that I have that I think most creative careers last 10 years. Uh-huh. They have 10 years of stunning uh, uh, exuberance and ideas and and then you get into just repeating yourself. Mm. Now, there are obvious, obvious, <laughs> obvious exceptions. Now, the reason that's a problem, in certainly in the advertising industry and I think in, in design and certainly probably in filmmaking, is that you have to come in every day and have a new idea. That idea can't be like yesterday's idea. So... If, you, if you're in a situation where you've used up all your ideas uh, after 10 years, what are you going to do? Now, it's fine if you're Mick Jagger. You know, he can go around the world singing Jumping Jack Flash, written in 1968, and, you know, 30,000 people turn up and pay £100 a ticket to go and see him. You can't do that. You know, we are not in an industry... You know, Roy Lichtenstein... When, you know, he discovered this thing of, as a painter of comic book art and he went on doing that for the rest of his career. Now, I love his work. I'm not criticising it. But we are in an industry where you have to come in every day and have a new idea, maybe like a film director. So how do you keep that going? How do you turn a 10-year career into a 15, 20, 30-year career? Mm. And that was the essence of that in, in my book. And the first thing was take the headphones off. You know, I see so many of my creative people when I was employing them all walking around, coming in with their headphones on, listening to a cool bit of music, and isn't that great? Isn't that cool? You look so great, don't you? Wandering around the road, and you're being a twat. (laughs) Because, you know, a job of a creative person is to absorb, is to take in influences constantly. You know, I've always said, you know, creativity isn't an occupation. It's a preoccupation. You don't know where the influence is going to come from. You don't know when it's going to happen. And the more you cut yourself off, the more likely you are to lessen the ideas you have. So that was the first one. Mix with the best. Sadly, it sounds very elitist, but other creative people will drive you forward. Uh, And don't become a cynic. A cynic destroys creativity. An optimist will kind of keep it going. So there were a whole series of little things that I did and and read stuff that other people don't read. You know, stay engaged. Mm. Um, Be excited about the world. Go and see stuff that other people aren't looking at because that will... That will feed into your creative soul and it'll come out in some shape or form mm. that you weren't aware of. Mm. You know, it's like I always used to say with, with a problem, you know, when people say to me, what do you do when you have a problem? I say, go for a walk. Just go for a walk. Just walk around. You do your best thinking when you're not thinking. Uh, and, and so, but you've absorbed all of these things, all these wonderful influences, and then they come back out in some shape or form. And that's why people say, where'd you get that idea from? You say, do you, know, I do you know, I honestly don't know, but it was obviously something that went in some time ago and it's been percolating around in my brain and now it's popped. And that's the lovely thing about it. How do you avoid, I mean, seeing uh, all the things that you've seen over the years and all the clients that you've worked on, how do you avoid that cynicism? Well, uh, you know, I think it has to obviously be slightly in your personality and I'm irritatingly optimistic but I think you have to be. I mean, otherwise you'd just, you know, forget it, you know, just, just, you know, be depressing not to be. But I think if you look at what we do, if you look at the opportunities we're given, if you look at the chances we get that other people don't get, to actually have our ideas taken up, put out there, invested in, it's a phenomenal buzz, mm, really. I, yeah. think. I mean, I just think it incredible. And, and you know, I always, I always used to say when I was creative directing at BBH, because I'm not there anymore now, I'm, I'm running a, um, uh, an early stage investment company helping ideas get up off the ground. But when I was creative directing, you'd, you'd get, somebody would come into my office, one of the um, production people, and they'd say, oh, John, um, you know, the creative team, uh, and I'm just picking two names, uh, Dick and Joe, uh, bit unhappy at the moment 
I think you better have a word with them, you know. And I'd go, oh, God. <laughs> so I said, oh, God, here, I have to go, I have to go. So I said, I said, I to go go along and see them, go into their office, close the door, sit down, say, hi, guys, or sometimes girls. I hear you're not very happy at the moment. They say, well, you know, we're not very... So I, I go, hey, hey, can I just stop for a moment now? Now, I used to say, can I tell you how I see your job from my point of view? Can I see tell you what I think? So, first of all, here we are in the middle of Soho. Pretty cool, not bad place to be. Could be in Tunbridge Wells, could be in the Balls Pond Road, you know, but we're not. We're in the middle of Soho. Pretty cool. The office is stacked with kind of wonderful people that you can talk to. And some of them are really very, very attractive. Um, the other thing, you've got a coffee bar downstairs, hot and cold running coffee, anytime you like. And then you sit in your office, I come in, I give you a brief and I say, here are guys, here's the brief. Uh, I'd like you to answer that come back in a week's time with some ideas. You come back in a week's time with some ideas. One of them I really love. And I say, that's fantastic. Can we make that up? I'll take that and do my best to sell it to the client. I do my best to sell it to the client. Often we do sell it to the client. And then the client goes, we really like this. We're going to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds making your idea. And then, and then, when we've made your idea, we spend millions of pounds telling everybody about your idea. Now, what part of this don't you fucking like? <laughs> <laughs> because if there is a part of it you don't fucking like, I'll change it. Fantastic. <laughs> there used to be two sullen blokes looking at me going, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's why, that you know... brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's a great business. That's right. And, you know, I think it is so easy just to forget how privileged we are and someone pays us to, to yeah, do that they get stuff. Paid. I forgot that bit. Yeah, and I pay you vast sums of money <laughs> <laughs> to sit in this office with your feet on the desk. John, I'm really interested. What do you think you would have done if advertising had not existed? What do you think you would have ended up doing? God, that's a, that's a difficult one, actually. I, I, um, uh, when I was about... 12, 10 to about 12, I, I used to go caddying uh, on a golf course to make money because, uh, and then I, I realized that if you could play golf, uh, you could earn more money because you could, you know, give people tips. So at about the age of 14, I, I thought I might become a professional golfer. And then I got to 15 and then the testosterone kicked in and I looked around and I thought, God, the women on golf courses are just dreadful. Can't I can't stay here. <laughs> so I think I'll go to art school. So I went to art school. So um, and the, I can assure you, the women were much much better at art school. Um, but I think um, I don't know. I, I would I, I love architecture. Would I become an architect? It's an impossible thing to say. You know, you might have become a. I, I don't know. I, I love I loved ideas. I loved having ideas. So some industry that was about ideas would have been uh, would have been I, I always regret actually I, I, I learned because I was a great jazz fan I loved um, people like John Coltrane and Theolonius Monk and musicians like that so uh, in my admiration of John Coltrane I, I took up the saxophone and uh, I sort of thought of myself as John Coltrane really except because, as you can obviously spot there is one minor <laughs> <laughs> there is one minor fault in this kind of adoration that he was black and I was white it didn't yeah. quite work really but I wish I'd taken up the guitar and that could have changed everything because you know I think it was a more accessible instrument but anyway that's history who knows who knows it's one of those lovely things to speculate the on the other thing is that you we talk about creative leadership in businesses and, and you managed to to start an, an organization that's kind of the world famous you know multiple multiple advertising agencies um what is it that's in you that's able to do that because not a lot of creatives are good at business well you know i i i, I i'm not sure i'm very good at business either vince actually i i, I was very very lucky in that i really respected good people around me. I think great creative people get good other people around them and they recognize talent in other people. And I was very lucky in meeting up with John Bartle and Nigel Bogle at TBWA back in 1973. Mm -hmm. And we set up, helped set up the London office of uh, TBWA. And we worked together and developed a great relationship. And that relationship was born out of respect for what each of us did. Mm. John Bartle was a phenomenal planner 
and thinker. Nigel Bogle was a brilliant, brilliant account manager running business. And obviously my task was the creative task. And we were all able to challenge each other, but in the end respected each other for what they brought to the table. And I suppose, it, you know, John Bartle always used to make a lovely observation. He said, I suppose, it, you know, running an agency is a bit like a band. You know, you want somebody who's a great drummer, you want somebody who's on uh, bass guitar and you want a lead singer. Mm. Uh, and you don't want the drummer being the lead singer. Uh, and the bass guitarist should definitely not play the drums. And that's the secret, I think, of running a great creative business is have fabulous partners around you, partners that genuinely respect what you bring to the party. Can question, mm. obviously, but, but in the end would go, well, that's what you do and that's what we should be backing and that that's why I think we went on to be as successful as we did because we didn't you know we didn't combust we didn't suddenly all break up in a creative ra- and, and again going back to bands you see it all the time don't you a great band sets up and then all of a sudden one of them wants to go off and do folk music and the other wants to do a bit of heavy metal and then the drummer wants to be the singer and oh fuck it's all falls apart and they're all over <laughs> and that's it but the, so the secret is respect and trust. What are the other guys doing now? Well, John Bartle went on to... Um, he he left at the end of 99. John went on to do various jobs. He uh, was chairman of Guardian Newspapers um, and did a huge amount of charity, mm-hmm. worked on charity projects, was uh, instrumental in helping a number of charities. Nigel and myself, we just left at the end of last year. And so Nigel is now working on charity projects and uh and obviously i'm i've gone on to the garage in soho which is as i've said an early stage investment company where we say to these people coming along with ideas don't just start a business build a brand mm. and so i'm really back mm. <laughs> i'm really back brand building and helping these companies understand why a brand is important because whatever idea you have whatever business thought you've got whatever technology you've got Somebody will come along and copy it and probably improve it, but they won't be able to copy the brand. And that's where value will reside. So I'm right back in the thick of it. Fantastic. Is that, is that is as rewarding as the advertising business? It's rewarding in a different way. You know, people say to me, so John, how's it going at the garage? And, and I, do say, I do say now, well, I tell you how it's going at the garage. When I'm in a meeting and it's getting boring, I just get up and go. <laughs> go, oh, shit. <laughs> That's how it's going wow. at the garage. And uh, it's lovely, that. That sense of freedom. But, you know, it, it's the, still the fun of, you know, I'm still working on coming up with positionings for brands. What should they be? How should they be talking? Giving them ideas for, you know, communication in all sorts of forms so it's it's great how do you choose the um the startups that you work with john well we do we have um we're, we're completely agnostic in terms of uh any industry we range across any industry as long as it's interesting we say you know we say things like is it disrupting a current business model is it scalable is it monetizable it's amazing how many people come into you with an idea that you can make how and how are you going to make money out of this Oh, we're going to sell advertising. Mm-hmm. Along with everybody else? Yes, maybe not. Um, do you like the people? That's probably the most crucial. Obviously, do you like the business idea? And the other thing that we talk about, a couple of other things, is is it frictionless? Is it going to make life easier? Is it going to be easy to purchase? Is it going to make life easier? And could the world do with this? Right. You know, if somebody came into us with a a betting app that would make millions would show them the front door because I'm not interested in that. But we do put a... We don't have a overtly um, green kind of policy, but we look at things and say, this the world could do with this. This would be good. Right. And if I'm going to spend my time doing something, then I'd like to do that. Yeah. Then we get it completely wrong. <laughs> Can you give us some uh, some examples of, uh, of some of the brands that you're helping to build? Yeah, indeed. We've... Um, We've started, we helped uh, set up Simba, the mattress in a box that actually makes life very, very much easier to buy buying a mattress. And the reason, there are a number of the products out there, a number of other brands doing it. The reason we bought into them was that we thought they had a superior product. That's the other thing that advertising teaches you, by the way. You know, the number of times I've been sitting in meetings and, um, 
you know, I've, I've been there to sell the idea, I've sold the idea, and then you have to kind of stay in the meeting because they're going to start talking about other things. You can't sort of go, well, I'm out now, guys, that's your problem. <laughs> and uh, you, so you, you stay sitting in the meeting and the client goes, well, you know, sales in the northeast aren't doing very well at the moment, maybe a bit of on-pack promotion, maybe we should change our distribution, whatever it might be, you know, there'll be. So often I'd be sitting there going, why don't you just make a better product? Mm. How about that as a sort of solution to this problem? And it was often so far down the list of what they should do because obviously they were they were stymied on that front. And so that's something you take into your your this world I'm now in is I look at everything and say, is it a better product? It's a very simple way of assessing it. So there there are all kinds of things like so Simba is a brilliant one. We've got uh uh, uh, we're working with a company, helping them. They're developing a new kind of uh, refrigerator that's based on water. Um, it's going to be, it's going to actually transform medicine distribution in Africa. But the big problem with Africa is keeping medicines, uh, inoculations, and things like that at a constant temperature of four degrees. Big, big, big problem. Well, their refrigerator they've designed because it's based on water can keep a refrigerator. I'm sounding like the salesman here. I don't want to do that. But this is so amazing, I've got to tell you. Their refrigerator can keep four degrees, a temp uh, the refrigerator at four degrees for 35 days at an ambient temperature of 42 degrees with access. Wow. So isn't that amazing? amazing? So of course the problem in Africa is the grid. It goes on and off. A conventional refrigerator, if the grid goes down for six or seven hours, temperature rises, the vaccines are destroyed. So that's amazing. And so we're working with them, taking that, uh, helping them with the brand and helping them move into the consumer field. So that's very exciting. We raised money for them. Um, and we're working with them on the brand and how they communicate their advantage. Mm. So that, that's pretty exciting. And then we go to other ones like um, Popsa, which is, you know, you take lots of photographs on your, your iPhone or whatever it is, and you've had a weekend away, and you want to maybe send everybody a book, a little bit of a memory of it. Very, very difficult doing that with an, I, uh, uh, with an Apple book. With their technology you literally get your photographs that you want tap them and uh caption bang and bang comes a book right it takes about 10 seconds to do so that's an example of of it being frictionless mm. you know yes you know it, you can you can do it but it takes about an hour with their technology it will take you about 10 seconds that's an example of frictionless is this a full-time gig for you now? Well, I've got lots of full-time gigs, which Philippa, my wonderful lady, says to me, John, how many full-time gigs have you got at the moment? Because I, <laughs> for, <laughs> I, 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 just, I was on the uh, Board of Trustees of the Design Museum. I've just come off that. Mm -hmm. I also have a vineyard down in the south of France, which um, uh, takes a considerable amount of time running that. Um, so, you know, I've got lots of full-time gigs. But, you know, somebody said to me, you know, because I'm 75, and they said to me, are you going to retire? And I said, why on earth would anybody retire? What, what, retire from what? Retire from doing interesting stuff. No, I'm not going to retire. And also, that's a bit like pulling the plug. You know, once you do that, you can see decline set in. Yeah. I always love using the example. You know, I'll do this, and, and then I'll <laughs> shut up. The greatest architect of all time, Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright died at the age of 91. He died six months before the Guggenheim, the greatest probably building, I think, in the world, opened. Mm. So if he'd retired at 89, we wouldn't have had the Guggenheim. Mm. So don't retire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the, the, the best is yet to come, John. Well, you've got, it's, it's always that thing people say to you, so what's the best idea you've, you've, you've got? You know, it's a kind of obvious. And you, you, the, the glib answer is hopefully the next one. You know? <laughs> One final question that I've got. I mean, you're obviously just such a wonderful talker. Oh. How important is salesmanship to what we do, do you think? Oh, that's a very good question. And I think, I think it's fundamentally important. I've always, you know, I've employed so many creative people and, and some of them have been just truly appalling at it. And therefore, you try and help them out. You, you take on that role for them. And that's what a creative director was there to do. But I do think... Um, it's important, because, not because you're trying to sell your idea, but what you're doing is you're communicating your belief in an idea. And if, if you can't communicate your passion for that idea, why should somebody else have passion for it? Mm. 
And it's a fundamentally important part of the creative process. It doesn't mean to say you have to use you know, articulate words. It doesn't mean to say you have to be able to construct an argument in a conventional way. But you have to demonstrate your passion for something. And I found that in, in, the, in a way, that's what clients bought into. Mm. They bought into your passion because they yeah. thought, God, if this person really, really believes in this, then you know, I, I, they are going to make it as, 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 as best as they possibly can. But the other question you get asked is, how do you sell ideas? And this is one thing I always used to say to the creative people when I said to them, look, when you're selling your idea, what you've got to do, the trick you've got to do, and, learn, and this you can learn, is you've got to start using the words the client uses when you're selling your idea. Don't just use your words. Oh, I think this will be beautiful. I think it's really cool. I think it'll be fantastic. I think it'll be... Yeah, 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 yeah. I buy all that. Use their words to describe your idea. So they understand or they will realize from that that what you've done is you've listened to them, you've understood their problem, and you've come up with a solution to their problem because that's the biggest thing you've got to convince somebody of. I have a solution to your problem. Now, if I use your words in describing your problem, there's a good chance you're going to go, this person has listened. Mm. And in that way, you might sell the idea. Great bit of advice. It's been awesome listening to you, John. It really well, has, thank mate. You. It's been wonderful. Great talking to you both. Yeah. Vince, lovely seeing you again. Yeah, you too, John. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful talking with you, John, and thank you so much. My really, pleasure. really appreciate that. My pleasure. And I've got to now come up with somebody I'm handing this on to, haven't I? We would be thrilled. Obviously. Let me have a little thing. Yeah. I'll think of somebody. There are a number of people I think it would be great for you to talk to. I think you're probably quite well connected, John, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got my window cleaner who always tells me whether the idea is any good or not. Actually, funny enough, I would have got, but she's sadly no longer with us. But I used to have this auntie who lived in Harpenden. Now, Harpenden is, is north of London just outside St Albans and is Middle England, you know, is absolutely... And she would always tell me if my ideas were any good and uh, she'd be wonderful to talk to about creativity. But sadly she, no was, she was a good barometer? She was a fantastic... Everybody needs an auntie in Harpenden. <laughs> 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 Great stuff. Lovely talking to you, Ben. Cool. And to you. Thanks, John. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective.